Welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My guest is Dr. Richard Hovanesian, who is the Professor Emeritus of Armenian History at UCLA and the holder of the Armenian Educational Foundation uh, Chair in Armenian History, and he's also a Presidential Fellow at Chapman University. Well, it's good to be back in Fresno for a while. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you for joining me. Can you tell us a little bit about... Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your your background and how you got involved in teaching, uh, beginning, I think, earlier at UCLA. But you've been in the field of Armenian studies now for more than a uh, half century, close to 60 years. Could you yeah. tell us a little bit about how that all began, how you got interested in Armenian history in particular, and then how you uh, began at UCLA? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I grew up in Tulare, and graduated from Tulare High School, and always had an interest in um, history and interest in teaching. That's what I wanted to become. Uh, I remember taking a questionnaire as what you want to be, and I said, teacher, and, I, and I'm happy that I spent my career teaching, but I wasn't particularly interested in Armenian history, but history in general. I was aware that... Uh, we were Armenian immigrants, and my father was a survivor of uh, unspeakable atrocities, but we didn't go much beyond that. And uh, so as I uh, developed into my uh, teens, I suppose, my, I, I had a greater interest. And uh, then I started reading uh Armenian history. I couldn't read any Armenian at the time, so but my my father subscribed to the Armenian Review, which is an English language uh, journal that dealt with history and um, literature and so forth. And that sort of got me interested in Armenian things. And as I went on, I came after high school, my first two years here to uh, the old campus of Fresno State, which is now the community college, and there was sort of exposed more to Armenian things, including my future wife, Varty Ter, who uh, sort of encouraged me to uh, learn uh, Armenian, and uh, so so it was. You know, I went on to Berkeley, uh, and there I became a, something of an activist, uh, an educational director, of the Armenian Youth Federation and various other positions until um, uh, until I tried and decided that I wanted to write about things Armenian. So when I was in Berkeley, um, it's interesting, you know, I, I wanted to write about Armenian history, but there was nowhere to write. That is, no, there were no professors, uh, as there are today, who could teach Armenian history or anything near Armenia. The closest thing I could get to Armenia was a a course on the Balkan Peninsula where the uh, professor, his name was Yelovich, uh, fortunately gave two lectures out of a semester on the Eastern question, and that included Armenia. But I did have some wonderful professors who did allow me to... um, sort of write on Armenian subjects, even though that was not their field. And from there, of course, I 
felt the need that if I wanted to be serious about Armenian um, history and Armenian studies, that I really had to know the Armenian language and to be able to read it. And so uh, at the invitation of uh, Simon Vorazian, who was the last prime minister of the first Armenian Republic, I spent a year in, in Beirut uh, where I learned to read and write and uh, sort of shed uh, a part of my Harpertsi at home, uh, sort of kitchen, kitchen Armenian, and pick up the uh, semi-literary East, Western Armenian. And because you started, I mean, you, you said you started in the, uh, you were going to college in the 50s and, and early 60s, and there were very few sources uh, on Armenian studies yeah. per se. Can you tell us what, what did you read that, uh, what could you read? What, what were well, there? There, was, there? There really wasn't much. Maybe there were 20 or 30 books, but uh, there was one by uh, Jacques de Morgan, who was a French writer, but had been, tra- the history of the Armenians, but had been translated to English. And then there was Kurkchan, um, through the, I think, an AGBU publication, who also wrote the history of Armenia. And so those are the uh, main things, but only the problem was that with ne- nearly all the uh, sources uh, that wrote about Armenia, they ended with, with the last Armenian kingdom of Cilicia in 1375. And then everything after that was sort of compacted into a few pages. Um, so uh, very little to go on, but but enough to, you know, as I said, the Armenian Review began in the 1950s, uh, so I had that uh, available to me. And then Armenian uh, newspapers, there was the Armenian Mirror, Armenian Spectator, Armenian Week, uh, no, Heidenik Weekly, uh, where where you could get information and news about Armenian things, including little tidbits of Armenian history. Once you once you learned Armenian, did that open up uh, more sources? In other uh, words, uh, uh, a, oh, absolutely. Yeah. There was a, so much written about uh, Armenian and the Armenian language. It's like we say that a lot of times that uh, oh well, the Armenians didn't write about the Armenian genocide because they didn't want to remember it. But if you look at the Armenians, uh, if you have the Armenian language, you see there are a great many sources on the genocide and memoirs. And it's, it's the problem was that it was not made available to um, non-Armenian reading public. It was kept, not intentionally, but the resources and the abilities kept it locked up in uh, the Armenian world. And as you well know, increasingly uh, Armenian readers uh, declined, uh, has steadily declined, uh, particularly in the United States. Yeah, the immigrant group read it, but unfortunately we, their children, <coughs> with exceptions, uh, didn't uh, learn enough of the language to be able to read those materials. 
Well, now the period of time you were you were studying fifties, sixties. This is when Armenia was part of the Soviet Union, but yeah. there they were teaching history in in Armenia. Were any of those sources available to you? Were you able to read any sources from Armenia, Soviet Armenia well, at that I time? Couldn't, as I said, I couldn't read. I could certainly after I returned from Beirut, uh, probably three quarters of my library uh, were publications from Armenia, and uh, because I was interested in modern Armenian history, uh, <clears throat> many of them were rather polemical or repetitive. You know, they had to uh, praise uh, the liberation that brought was that the Soviet rule brought to them and how terrible things were before, but still useful. And, and among the others, there were some very, very, uh, critical, uh, when I say critical, uh, fundamental works of scholars who bridged the pre-Soviet and the Soviet period, such as uh, Agop Manandian, his uh, Kanagan Babachun uh, of the Armenians. Uh, so those those works were very fundamental in reading details. And then there were series of like 10 volumes or 12 volumes, uh, probably intended for college level, but on different uh, periods of Armenian history from ancient times to the modern period. So I relied, I relied very heavily uh, on those, but I was always aware also of the uh, political ramifications of, of what and what they couldn't uh, write. It was sort of funny, because even when they wrote uh, things on ancient Armenian history, their preface always had to go back and and talk about uh, Marx and Engels and Lenin. But then when you got into the main part of the body, uh, Marx, Lenin, and Engels were not anywhere present. Mm. Now you're you it seems like you were uh embarked on a kind of detective work in other words you had to find these sources and yeah. you just said how how modern history was anything maybe from the 15th 16th century all the way until yeah. the 20th century. Yeah, right. So how did you how did you narrow down for your own work to start with uh your own doctoral work? Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Well, I um when I went I, I was uh Somebody of an idealist and a dreamer of uh, of an independent Armenian state, etc. I, I knew that there had been a short-lived uh, Armenian uh, republic after World War One. I. I didn't know much about it, but it was sort of a the concept of of having uh, an Armenian flag in the United Nations Plaza and things of that type sort of made me very patriotic. And so I I, um, I wanted to look at that period, uh, critical period, which was also very, very controversial here. And I didn't understand why it was controversial, but I did know that uh, one part of our community uh, uh, sort of idolized uh the red, blue, and orange flag of that first republic, and another part of the community, you know, looked upon it as being uh, a symbol of a misery uh, that was supplanted by uh, 
Soviet uh, flag, which represented to them uh, security and protection uh, from further uh, invasions and genocide. And also, uh, as we all understand, uh, Soviet rule was uh, also did, uh, it, it was sort of a policy in the Soviet Union to promote culture. So not only in the Soviet Armenia, but throughout the Soviet Union, music and arts and drama uh, were all encouraged so long as they could be kept within limits and not become what the Soviet authorities regard as becoming uh, ultra-nationalistic. It was all right to be a patriot, whatever that means, but not all right to be a nationalist. So, uh, you know, uh, Armenian musicians, authors, etc., were aware of this, and um, uh, so, so there was uh, significant uh, cultural progress and universal education uh, came to the Armenians as well as other people. Uh, so that segment of the population should, could certainly hang on to that as uh, showing great progress and especially security uh, for the Armenian nation. Well, when you were doing that research on, on the First Republic, uh, of course, the period when there's no Internet, there's no... No easy yeah. access. Where, where did you have to really go? What were the main uh, places well, you we, went for we sources? We had to go to uh, uh, archives around the world. And uh, Vartiter, my wife, well, although she was a physician, had a deep interest in, in history and also uh, had linguistic help of uh, advantages that were very helpful to me because uh, she's fluent in Russian. Uh, she knew adequate uh, German, she knew English, uh, and uh, I knew the French, and I knew the English, and uh, the Armenian, we both knew Armenian. So we had to travel uh, to London, to Paris, to Beirut, uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, to go into the archives and then to the uh, delegation of the Armenian Republic archives were the Armenians after World Armenians after World War One had a had two peace delegations in in Paris, one led by Bogos Nubar, uh founder of the AGBU, and the other uh Avidi Saharonian, a writer, uh poet from the Armenian Republic, both of whom were at work in Paris and uh whose archives of Aronian, at least, well, both archives uh, ended up in uh, the United States uh, as a result of World War II. They were sent to the United States for safekeeping, or at least uh, in the case of the uh, Bolas Nubar uh, papers, uh, uh, photocopies or microfilms of those were sent here, uh, but the original of Avedis Aronian's papers from Paris were sent to the Boston Heidenick building and were housed there down in the basement in very, very dusty, musty area. And we could tell when we opened up the packages to study uh, the valuable information inside 
that there was dust, you know, like a quarter of an inch thick, which meant that they had sat there probably for 20 years without anyone having opened them. So it was really exciting. You know, I think that today uh, researchers who have so much at their fingertips, and which is wonderful, are nonetheless deprived that excitement of going into these dark, musty archives, opening up files and packages and getting the original documents out and looking at the signatures of, of world leaders and leaders who are no longer remembered now, uh, going through them. And uh, it, it is being uh, like an, in, an investigative uh, historian and really is investigation because in many of those packages, for example, the ones of Aronian, uh, somehow whoever had organized those packages didn't realize that uh, the first page of a document was 15 packets away from the second page uh, of that document, and you had to be uh, alert to saying, hey, this this is a continuation, what do I saw back in 15 packets back, and uh, so uh, it, 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 it was fun. It was fun, exciting, and uh, also you, you get to travel to different countries and live for a while uh, with the local population and get a greater appreciation of the world. And we were talking about uh, we were talking about your doctoral dissertation, your interest in in kind of the the Armenian. Uh, Republic, the first Armenian Republic. You completed the the dissertation, which actually then covered uh, really only the period of the leading right up to the uh, Republic, and then and then you thought about going further. So tell us how you embarked on the the journey of writing the the complete history of the first Republic. Well, when I first thought I was doing a PhD dissertation, I thought I was going to write the whole history of the Armenian Republic. After all, it lasted less than three years, so uh, I thought I could uh, cover uh, with a dissertation, a long dissertation, that whole period. But when I started going into the materials, both secondary and primary, that is, the archival stuff, you know, it just overwhelmed me with what's there. Uh, you know, later, much later, uh, after I had been teaching uh, for nearly... Uh, well, quarter of a century, the whole issue of Karabakh uh, blew up, uh, and you know I had I had written a, already a couple of chapters on Karabakh, but the papers that I've gone through just on Karabakh 1918-1921 were were enough to write a book by themselves. And at, at one time, I even considered doing my dissertation just on that question, even though. Uh, there was no Karabakh immediate issue at the time. The materials were very, very rich, and it was as controversial in 1920 as it is in 1990 or 2020. Uh, and so what I started to do is to write the history of the Republic, but found out that I couldn't get beyond uh, just the road to independence. That is, how did they get there? And then I uh, said, well, okay, I'll write another volume on the Republic. Uh, 
each time I tried that, I found that I couldn't go uh, more than two or three months uh, of the history because it was so complex. You know, uh, if if President Woodrow Wilson sneezes in Washington D.C., the ripples come all the way to Armenia, and then multiply Wilson by uh, Churchill and Orlando and Clemenceau uh, and, and the whole world scene after World War One, and you, you understand, wow, uh, th- there is no Armenian history without there being a history of the world. Uh, and that's probably true today as well, that you can't just take uh, the Armenians and look at them by themselves. It has to be put into context, context of their neighbors, context of the region, context of the world. And uh, so it ended, it took me um, 30 years <laughs> to do what I thought I was going to do in two years, and that is uh, the five volumes on Hayastan Nehamarabidichun, the Republic of Armenia. And even so, it is not complete because I, I always realized that there was so much material out there that every chapter that I've condensed, and you know, when I, I'm a very sloppy writer, so when I start writing, I'm uh, I don't have the form of the chapter uh, down. I have boiled down, so I write a, I write a chapter of a thousand pages. And then, uh, and then I uh, start condensing it down to a uh, hundred, and ultimately to fifty pages, and and then worry about the wording and structure and so forth. So that uh, I knew all the time, all the while, that there was much more to be written. And I'm glad that in recent years, after Armenia became independent once again, that uh, a reevaluation of the republic uh, by uh, post-Soviet scholars in Armenia uh, was very uh, complimentary. So I found uh, I found that uh, many of our prejudices in our community, whether it was for or against that first republic, or were many of them were just emotional responses without really being grounded in facts. And hopefully, you know these. 30 years that I spent uh, on researching this subject or other another subject have uh, placed that critical period uh, after the genocide and uh, before the establishment of Soviet Armenia. I've placed it in some understandable, balanced uh, perspective. And, you know, we, we always say, and it's probably true, that without that first republic, uh, the Soviet leaders would not have wanted to see a Soviet Armenian state because they they were recreating the Russian Empire uh, in a different way, and they gave in to a nationalistic sent- sentiment on the borderlands uh, and ultimately allowed for the creation of these territorial, uh, not necessarily large, but territorial entities that they call Soviet republics and allowed uh, these Soviet republics a significant amount of internal cultural uh, autonomy uh, or, you know, uh, self 
direction, which was uh, fortunate. Now, when you were when you were working on the First Republic and you were already doing research on the First Republic, uh, you, you you probably already started looking at the genocide because the genocide, of course, yeah. pre is the precursor to everything that happens in the Republic of Armenia, and yeah. you have spent uh, much of your career researching, speaking, organizing conferences, publishing books about the Armenian genocide. Yeah. So tell well, us. Yeah, a little... I didn't start that way. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, as is clear to anyone of my generation, uh, there were sort of two reactions to the genocide uh, among our parent generation, and one was uh, incessant talking about what happened to them, especially women who had been taken to the deserts and lived with Bedouins and Kurds and were later rescued. And I grew up, I remember very well, right here in Fowler and Selma, uh, seeing relatives, so old ladies, with tattoos all over their lips and hands and because they had been taken in by the Arab tribes. Uh, and so some of those uh, women, when they got together, they just all recounted what their experience was. But the others were like my father, uh, who rarely... Uh, said anything uh, about what he had gone through. I mean, we, I didn't know until the last couple of years of his life what his story had been before he came to America in 1920 as a orphan. I mean, he was a young man by that time, 19 or 20, and then, uh, but I didn't know what he had been through until uh, the very end. And, uh, and so I didn't start that way uh, we were all aware, you know, we all knew uh, the bad things that happened. We all knew that we didn't like the Turks. We weren't sure why. Well, we, we were sure in the sense that they had uh, committed uh, mass atrocities, but we couldn't put that into any kind of context. Uh, and I was sort of forced into this field by denial. Uh, that was the one thing that uh, we we couldn't tolerate that is uh, being told uh, by the perpetrators or by their uh, uh, supporters that this was what my father is saying us uh, or or said ultimately or, or what the women are telling us uh, are uh, untruth, unlie, they're lies. And then in the, in the 1970s at UCLA walking down the same corridor and the same floor was a colleague of mine uh, who wrote a history of Turkey and the Ottoman Empire who really whitewashed the Armenian genocide entirely uh, and throughout the volume talked about Armenian terrorists and uh, Turkish unfortunate necessary responses to the terrorists and Kupad, the fact that there had been any kind of premeditation in the genocide, that got me riled up. And uh, even though it cost me at UCLA uh, some, uh, well, some friendship, some ceilings put on where I could go. For example, I was the, the associate director of the Near Eastern Center and probably could be appointed the uh, the director.
that I became so outspoken and uh, support and joined by the students, Armenian students at UCLA, uh, put put uh, some limitations on it, but it was worth it because uh, we brought to light the uh, ugly specter of, of genocide, and this man happened sort of to be the grandfather of all the future genociders who all picked up his arguments. And so uh, that uh, started me off, and I began simply by compiling a bibliography of non-Armean sources, not Armenian sources, because, again, at that time you get a sense that it has to be non-Armenian to be authentic or for people to believe, when that's sort of silly because the Armenian sources are much more authentic and much more thorough than the non-Armenian. That's where I started with a bibliography of non-Armenian sources on a genocide, and then I began to organize conferences on uh, the Armenian genocide on its 70th, 80th, 85th, 90th anniversary, and take the papers, uh, inviting international conferences, uh, taking the the papers from those conferences, uh, editing them, uh, getting them prepared for publication, publishing them, and uh, then uh, it's sort of interesting for about 15 or 20 years, probably, I was invited to speak about the Armenian Genocide about 20 times to one, one uh, relating to my uh, Ph.D., field of the Armenian Republic, and that there was a great deal more interest in the genocide that was being generated, and particularly when uh, our Jewish and other colleagues uh, began to uh, consider comparative studies, uh, not just their own, but to look at their own in the context of other people's experiences. And so at that period uh, of time, I was invited to universities around this country and uh, all the way to Japan and China and uh, to Middle Eastern countries and European countries and Australia uh, to uh, speak about the Armenian Genocide. And so even though I had no training in the field, uh, I became sort of a spokesperson uh, for uh, trying to uh, put the Armenian genocide or give it its proper place in uh, the, this field of studies. Well, I think uh, 1982 was a, also a watershed year uh, in that there was the first international conference on genocide and uh, Holocaust in Tel Aviv. Uh, they tried to sabotage it the Turkish government uh, trying to blackmail the Israeli government, Israeli government pulling out of the conference and a number of other Israeli institutions, but a lot of good Jewish uh, scholars rejecting the call to reject, uh, uh, to uh, uh, close the conference down. And that, as I say, was also a watershed year because it brought much more attention to the Armenian Genocide. Sometimes when you try to suppress a topic, it becomes all the more popular. And that was interesting because, uh, you know, we were about 10 
Armenian participants out of 500 who were going to be on the program. Well, we ended up with probably 250 or 200 on the program, but our sessions on the Armenian genocide were packed because people wanted to know what was all this controversy all about. So it sort of backfired on it. And it also, at the same time, uh, encouraged uh, scholars of uh, good conscience, regardless of their ethnicity or religion, to uh, look at the Armenian genocide seriously and to see in what ways it was a prototype, in what ways it could be compared, and what lessons should be drawn from not uh, punishing the genocide and not uh, honing, living up to the promises and pledges that were made by the great powers while the genocide was occurring. We were uh, talking about uh, the Armenian genocide, how you had gotten into uh, speaking throughout the world and doing more research. I think one of the most significant contributions you've made was in the Oral History Project. And I was thinking back to what you were saying about listening to uh, to family members and people in Tulare or Fowler talking about uh, the Armenian genocide. When did you when did you begin to consider uh, an oral history project? Can you tell us a little bit about the background of well, that? Well, yeah, uh, you know, oral history is a relatively new, uh, it's a post-World War II, uh, if that's new, uh, development. Um, but uh, in the 1970s particularly, uh, I became sort of deeply aware of the fact that uh, the people that we had grown up with and parents and grandparents and sort of took for granted and thought would be here forever uh, were quickly disappearing and uh, and taking with them everyone was a story uh, you know I, I remember when I when I lived in in Fresno for a couple of years after I got my MA degree um, in the Hazelwood area uh, nearly every street uh, block was Armenian, block after block after block. And all of these people gradually disappeared. And so I became sensitive to the fact that they were taking with them so many valuable things about their home life and what um, uh, schools were like and what their holidays were like. And so I decided, even though it was very late uh, in uh, their lives, because the genocide 1915-1922, we're talking about 1970s, uh, more than a half century later, I decided that we were, I was going to make an effort to uh, gather as many of their memories and uh, testimonies as possible. So I was, um, I guess, clever enough, if you want to call it that, to put in a proposal uh, to the University of California to allow me to organize a new course, uh, there was no such course before that, on oral history, uh, that is a spoken history. And uh, it was approved, so uh, in uh, about 1970, I was able to offer course credit to uh, students, and particularly those students who uh, could speak Armenian, uh, because it was important that 
we interview in the language that the interviewee was most comfortable in. And although they managed with English, they were much more expressive in Armenian. And uh, so I gave uh, students uh, uh, a couple of weeks of training, one week uh, on uh, or the background of the Armenian Genocide, and the second week on methods of oral history. That is, how do you conduct an interview? Uh, for example, um, uh, did you do? Uh, uh, did you go there? Uh, that's a, what we call a close-ended question. It's just one one word can answer that. But then say, tell me something about where you went after that. Uh, then they start telling you. Uh, much more, and even though it's um, you know in two weeks you can't do much, and uh, at UCLA we're on a quarter system, which meant the whole quarter is ten weeks, this whole course. So we have to go at a very rapid speed. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I gave uh, each student a quota of eight or ten interviews that had to be done uh, for that. Quarter, and the interviews had to be done uh, in the homes of uh, the interviewees because they're much more at ease there, and uh, it's more comfortable for them instead of bringing them to the university. And in those years, uh, it was really a big uh, issue uh, because you know tape recorders could weigh ten or fifteen pounds. Even in those times, we had to lug those around, uh, and ultimately we we started and uh, gathered a significant number of interviews. I remember spending a with uh, four or five of my students uh, came to Fresno uh, with and stayed with my mother uh, on Butler Avenue, and then sort of we had organized a weekend of doing oral histories here in Fresno. And so I was something like a dispatcher. When one oral history was finished, I would give the name of the next person to uh, another student who would go out and do that interview. And, of course, these interviews are of mixed quality. Some interviewers are perfect, can go on for two hours, three hours. Other interviewers just don't get it very well and, maybe are not listening carefully. And so, you know, their interviews are 20 or 25 minutes. But collectively, they're, they're all very important. We now have, we now have about a thousand oral history um, audio interviews. And uh, uh, you may have read somewhere that a couple of years ago, uh, I decided that I would uh, give these uh, or house these in the Shoah Institute at US, USC uh, because they uh, have a very good, good record of knowing how to preserve tapes and also to index them and put them online. You know, audio, all these tapes, uh, audio tapes, are all uh, vulnerable to uh, wear and uh, some already that when we were doing them, try to translate them uh, were already worn through. So what I did uh, between 
Foundation was to send uh, the tapes to Armenia, to uh, uh, ACNES, Rafi Hovhannisyan's International Research Center. And there uh, I had uh, one or two individuals uh, listen to the tapes and transcribe them so I could have them now in written Armenian or written form. And then they just came back to me in written form. And another course in the later years when there were virtually no survivors left, I still kept my UCLA course and gave the students a new assignment, and that was to take five or six of these uh, interviews uh, each quarter and to translate them into English. And again, there were some very good translators and some that were not so good. And I have always to laugh at one of my students who had translated uh, Med's Mamas, Med's Mamas, my grandmother, but she had uh, translated as my big mother, <laughs> uh, Med's Mamas, uh, my big, uh, mm-hmm. my big mother, which is sort of funny, uh, uh, not sort of funny, which was funny, but also tells us um, the students don't always know as much as they say they know, and one has to be very careful after the translations to go over and edit uh, edit the work. So uh, this, uh, yeah, this has been, uh, I think, a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, I think that's been one of the most important documentary, and it's it's still open to so much research because a lot of that still hasn't been actually looked at. So now that you're transcribing, you'll be yeah. able to do that. We have a, a few minutes left, and I want to uh, focus the last few minutes on the Society for Armenian Studies it was founded in 1974, and you were one of the founding members of yeah. the society. Um, yeah. I'd like to tell uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you were thinking about. Why, what was the need to form a society? Well, you know, it was um, instigated uh, uh, in Denver, Colorado. I was participated in a conference uh, on the Middle East Studies Association, and I uh, had a paper uh, that it was accepted. Uh, but at those years, there were no organized panels uh, or roundtables on Armenian topics, and they put me into a panel with the Turkish Studies Association. Well, uh, they were not, by that time, uh, they weren't friendly at all. Uh, not only were they not friendly, just when my paper was going to be given, uh, they, they called a, a recess, or adjournment or not a German, a recess, so they could go on and have a business meeting of their Turkish Studies Association. That left me hanging. And then uh, the wife of the man who I had uh, negatively interacted with at UCLA, uh, uh, and this was even before he had finished uh, his work, uh, turned around and called me uh, Turkogli Turk. Uh, you know, son of a Turk. Uh, and I, that uh, got me miffed. Uh, so I decided that we should organize an, orga- an Armenian studies group, and I spent a lot of time, I guess, as you said, uh, there was no Internet, there's no computer, uh, and so I had to go through uh, 100 catalogs to try to compile the names of Armenian uh, scholars who were in even tangentially 
uh, involved with anything Near Eastern, uh, and wrote to these people uh, about organizing a uh, such an organization. Uh, and the responses were pretty good. A couple of people felt uh, it was unnecessary. A couple of people felt, and maybe rightfully, that why do we want to be a part of the Middle East? We should want to be a part of the Russian uh, Slavic world because Armenians were much better accepted in the Slavic world than they were in the Near Eastern world, which didn't have a place for Armenians. Uh, except for being a religious minority. Uh, but we ended up being in the Middle East Studies Association. And then I, I, I was aware of the fact in choosing a name. Uh, well, I wanted to say Armenian Studies Association because that puts the word Armenia first, and I always like to put the name Armenia first. But there was a long-standing American or- Armenian organization known as the Armenian Students, Students Association, and that was the ASA. I didn't want to have any confusion uh, about that, so I turned it around and suggested Society for Armenian Studies. And then uh, I, uh, uh, when I w- was attending a conference at Harvard University sponsored by Nasser National Association, for Armenian Studies and Research. Uh, at that time, uh, organized an ad hoc committee with uh, Nina Garsoyan, uh, Dikran Kyumjan, uh, Avedi Sanjan, and Robert Thompson. And uh, uh, over uh, lunch at a, uh, at a Greek restaurant across the street from Harvard, we uh, decided to have uh, the first uh, executive body, and uh, with, and I suggested Nina Garsoyan, who was the dean of Armenian studies and was still living and still working, uh, to be the first chair. And after that, uh, we began to organize panels uh, on Armenian studies, uh, which have been sort of uninterrupted now, one, two, or three uh, Armenian-related uh, panels uh, meeting with the Middle East Studies Association. And oh. one good thing I should say before we end is uh, when we first started these panels, there were, uh, and of course the, the Turks, Turkish studies people were probably more, but we would attend each other's panels, but we were like a heckling uh, negative a rooting body against the other, and never supportive, never seeming to be very interested in the other, what scholarly things the others had to say. And now that's changed a lot. Uh, uh, we listen to them, and they listen to us, and some of their best uh, presenters on Armenian topics, including the Armenian genocide, are of Turkish or Kurdish, uh, origin, or at least somewhere from Turkey. And so that wall uh, has been coming down, it has come down. Uh, SAS, Society for Armenian Studies, has helped with that. It's organized that. It's uh, organized also or published a number of uh, scholarly papers and works. Uh, so it's done 
done a good job and been the common denominator uh, for uh, Armenian studies. And it has grown, uh, and it is and has grown to more than uh, three hundred members. On that, we have yeah. to end today. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Hovanesian, for joining me. Thank you very much. Welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series.